All right, our scripture passage today is from 1 Peter 1, verses 13, through 1 Peter 2, verse 3. These verses can be found in page 1014 in those blue pew Bibles that you have. You can either grab one now and turn to it, or I'll remind you of that page number in just a minute um, so that you can have it in front of you when you hear the sermon. But listen to the word of the Lord. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead. You can have a seat. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this afternoon. We have had a lot of hot days already in the summer, and so we thank you for a cooler day. Thank you for the fans blowing. Father, thank you for this opportunity to sit um, before you. Father, I'm reminded of what Nathan often prays, that we who seek to understand your scripture would be willing to stand under it. And Father, I pray now for the women and the men, the girls and the boys who are gathered here now. Father, would you so work in our hearts that we would be willing to stand under your scripture and to hear what you have to say to us today. Father, there are a lot of reasons why we should be discouraged when we look into the world uh, where you have placed us. Father, none of us want to deny that it is beautiful, but Father, we live... Um, every day this week knowing that it's broken. 
We feel it in our own bodies and in our own bones. We see it in the sick ones who are around us, whether they are our children or our loved ones or our neighbors or our friends. We see it in the accidents that happen among human beings and the volitional evil that is part and parcel of civilization, that which we call civilization. Father, we as um, human beings struggle to love one another. Father, we struggle to uh, show compassion. Father, in fact, your image bearers um, are the ones, we, Father, are the ones who with our malice, um, Father, with our deceit, the hypocrisy that is part and parcel with being a human being, the envy and the slander that escapes our tongues, even in the guise of blessing. Um, we are the ones that cause violence among uh, other image bearers. Father, we know that as a culture here in the States, we are struggling deeply. Father, we are struggling with um, denying the sanctity of life from womb to grave. Father, we wonder what is the role of the church in that. Father, we are part and parcel with a community and with institutions where um, racism has affected all of us. As we said on Wednesday night, the weightiness of that and the presence is always with us. Father, we feel that. And we do not know what to do. In fact, Father, we're afraid to talk about it because we're afraid to offend one another. Father, we come to you and we plead for you for help. Father, we come before you because, honestly, the concerns of our own lives overwhelm most of the time even our ability to be concerned for those who are around us. As we have said in that call to confession, we are oftentimes wrapped in our own concern. And because of that, we condone so much evil, prejudice, and greed. Father, we come to you knowing that these are our struggles. And we are amazed that you know that they are our struggles. You're the one that has given us these words. You're the one that has said that you know us. And um, yet, you tell us to come before you. You tell us to listen. You tell us to stop and to consider you. Father, my prayer today for every one of these women and men, image bearers of yours gathered before you here, would be drawn into worship, seeing you, Jesus, and worshiping. Father, some of us will worship through our tears. And Father, I pray that you would communicate to us that you know Father, some of us will try to resist worship because of our anger. And I pray that you would break through that anger. Father, some of us are just so distracted that it's hard to know how to worship. And then other of us are waiting. We're waiting on you. Father, do you see us and do you hear us? And we praise you that your word says not only do you see and hear, but you know us. Father, I pray that as we, your people, gather together, we would be encouraged by the truth of the gospel again today. Holy Spirit, 
we are asking you to do the very act that you promised to do, which is show us Jesus. And that seeing Christ, we might be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, and that by your power. We thank you and praise you that you intend to do more than we could ask or imagine in this time. And so, Father, would you please work among us? We pray this with great hope and with great expectation as we turn to your word. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We have been in Peter for four weeks, three weeks now, and uh, we are going to work our way all the way through this first letter of Peter. And so, if you're wondering what you ought to be reading this summer as you prepare for coming to worship, Peter would be a great thing to read. There are two letters of Peter in the New Testament, First and Second Peter, and I would encourage you to go and to read them. Today, we are looking at these verses, 13 in chapter 1, all the way through verse 3 in chapter 2. And guess what? We only have two points this week, two points to talk about, that the call of Christian hope has implications for our minds and for our hearts. That's what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to ask the question, what is the call of Christian hope on our minds? That's going to be the first section. And the second section is going to be, what is the call of Christian hope on our hearts? Okay? Last week... We talked about this hope as Peter introduced it from verses 3 all the way through verse 12. And the main point of last week was this. Christian hope takes hold of the future in the present. We take hold of the future in the present because that hope is anchored in the past. And now the question comes for us, what is the calling of that hope to our minds, and to our hearts. Peter is preparing us for something. Peter is preparing the readers of his letter, those folks who were part of the dispersion from Jerusalem in that first, those first few decades after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, and the Christians began to be dispersed out of Jerusalem, and as they went, Many Greeks, many non-Jews came to faith and the church was born and the church began to spread. And Peter was making sure that we were aware of our need for hope, the hope that is rooted in the very actions of God in the past, namely the gospel, right? That Jesus historically came, God became man and dwelt among us bore our sins on the cross, died the death that we were intended to die, and because his sacrifice of his life, a perfect life, given for your sin and my sin, he was raised from the dead and is even now seated at the right hand of God the Father. That that hope, that truth in reality, is what we take hold of. Peter is saying, look, you're called to do something because of that hope. Because Peter knew what was coming. Why did he know what was coming? Because Jesus had promised it. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will suffer. But do not be afraid, because I've overcome the world. 
So Peter prepares his listeners with this offer of hope, the Christian hope that is there in verses 3 through 12. But now he asks the question, or we ask the question of him, what is the call of Christian hope on our minds? Look at verse 13, if you will, there on 10, 1014. It says this, Therefore, Peter is about to give us some imperatives, things that we ought to do, but recognize that they are based on what God has already done. We often use these as indicatives, what God has done, statements of fact, that the result of which are imperative statements of action, a call to action, right? And this is the way it has always been with God's communication. When God first began to speak to people, he would always define himself and what he had done before he called them to do anything. And that's the amazing reality of God's work of grace among fallen human beings. I want you to see that the call of Christian hope on our minds is what we read in verses 13 through 17. Really, if you're asking the question, what am I supposed to do with that call of Christian hope on our minds? We're asking this question, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? I want to show you three things in this first section. The call of Christian hope on our minds. I want you to see that, that Peter tells us to do three things. To set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed at Christ's coming. You see that, right? The second is to be holy. And then the third is to be controlled by fear. Let's think about those for just a minute with me. This is our first part. What is the call of Christian hope on our minds? The first thing that we read right here is in verse 13. It says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter points us forward as that which we ought to set our hope on. What is it going to be like when Jesus returns? Peter says to do this, you have to actually prepare your mind. And if you read the footnote that is in your scripture like it is in my scripture, it actually says this, to gird up the loins of our minds. And you go, what a strange phrase. You're right, it's a strange phrase. It's a phrase that's straight out of the Old Testament, this idea of girding up your loins. Maybe the oldest place that we have found it in the Old Testament is in the book of Job, where God comes to Job and he tells Job, you better gird up your loins. I am about to tell you something. It's an old phrase. What does it mean? It simply means this, that if you were to be in the ancient Near East, you wore a robe. And when it was time for you to either run or to fight or to work, when you were preparing for action, you took your robe and you tucked it into your belt so that you were ready to go. And that's what the Apostle Peter is using here and saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Take your thoughts, all of your thoughts, and bring them together for a minute so that you can be ready Gird up the loins of your mind. We're going to come back to that. He then says, and be self-controlled. Don't follow the passions of your heart. But rather, he says, set your hope fully 
on the grace that is to be revealed at Jesus' coming. What are we supposed to be focused on in this life? Children, if I asked you what your parents have told you to focus on this week, how would you answer that question? Have your parents actually told you, hey, look, I want you to be focused on the grace that is going to be revealed when Jesus comes? <laughs> they probably have said something about being focused on your job, being focused on your education, being focused on the tasks that are in front of you, to, to put your focus somewhere. That's not all bad. But Peter is saying that when suffering is promised, the thing that we need to do is to set our minds, to be fully focused, to set our minds fully on the grace that is to be revealed when Jesus comes. I gave you a portion of a poem for, from Gerard Manley Hopkins in the preparation. I would encourage you to go look at it. It, it is a poem that in one sense encapsulates um, the magnitude of the changing of the world in which we are in and of the smallness of what it means to be a human until the resurrection is considered. And Hopkins sees that resurrection in light of reality that in the blink of an eye, in the flash of a moment, everything that seems passing and fading about what it means for you as a human being to be of flesh and blood is instantly transformed into the same glory, the immortal diamond is what he uses, that is Christ. He didn't come up with it. The Apostle Paul writes in, the sec in, in 2 Corinthians that as we gaze upon Christ, we're changed into his image by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we are to think about the grace that is to be revealed at the coming of Jesus. This idea is to be attuned to something, I want to make this very practical for you. When you get in your car, what radio station do you listen to? What is your radio station tuned to right now? Now, I realize that that is a generational question. If you're as old as me, you probably really do tune your radio to something. You probably listen to something. If you're younger than me, you just have a playlist that you love listening to, or you have a station that is always being downloaded in your phone that you're listening to. But I'm asking you the question, what are you attuned to? And the Apostle Peter is encouraging you and me, tune the radio station of your mind to the grace that's going to be revealed to you when Jesus Christ returns. We were thinking this week about how much of our lives revolve around songs. When we left the South 22 years ago to move to New England, I remember crossing the New Jersey border, and we were at a rest station, and we were eating a meal, and the boys were babies, right? And I remember that James Taylor came on the radio, and Mita and I met in North Carolina, and we knew James Taylor is from North Carolina, and immediately we began to cry, and our tears welled up in our eyes because we knew what that meant and, and the longing that it created. Mita's sister came and visited us this weekend, and we took her to the Red Sox, and we couldn't wait for the eighth inning, right? Because what happens in the eighth inning at the Red Sox? We all sing Sweet Caroline, right? And, and this song that meant nothing to us when we came now defines something for us. It means something to us. I want to ask you the question, what is your heart 
tuned to? What is your mind tuned into? Peter says, tune it into the grace that's going to be revealed at the coming of Jesus. But not just that. He says in verse 15 that we are to be holy. And you go, Bradley, it seems like you skipped a lot there. I want you to understand that that is the main verb that, that Peter uses here. Be holy. And he says it this way in verse 14. He says, as children of obedience, not just being obedient children, but as children of obedience, an identification of who we are. As children of obedience, you also, he says, wait, do not be conformed. And what he's saying is, don't be conformed by the passions that used to define your ignorance before you knew of who God was in Christ. But instead, as he who called you is holy, and here's the main verb, you also be holy in all your conduct. What is he saying there? He is saying, live according to your new reality. You have been set apart. Your identity is as a child of obedience. And the calling is for us not to be conformed or formed or shaped by the passions of our former ignorance. When we believed that God was not for us and that he was not generous, the lie of the garden, right? We acted in such a way that we were formed by our passions. We said the very things we feel are our identity. You see it in the world around you, don't you? And you and I are also tempted to say, what I feel is who I am. But Peter says, no, you are not. As children of obedience, a new identity, the calling is to be holy as the one who calls us is holy, as God is holy. Where does this language come from? It comes from the Exodus story both in Exodus and Leviticus, when the Israelites are redeemed out of slavery in Egypt and God says, I'm calling you out. I'm your God and you're my people. And God says to them, be holy even as I'm holy. And Peter is saying, look, you've been called out. Be holy. But this holiness is the idea of living out of a new reality. To be holy is not first and foremost to act in a specific way in, in, in an innumerable list of commands, but is to recognize a new reality that marks you and me. God is holy, and he has called us his, and so as children of obedience, we are called to be holy. When you go to a Red Sox game, you see tons of jerseys, right? Some of you are wearing them even today. And on the backs of those jerseys, you see names. And you see names of players that used to play for the Red Sox and some that still play for the Red Sox. And this idea is a lot of those players get traded to different teams. Peter is telling us, look, you have been taken from one family to another family. It's not just teams. It's a whole complete new father. And we're going to see that in just a minute. Because the last thing that he says ought to be a calling to our minds because of Christian hope is that we ought to be controlled by fear. 
And finally, you say, finally, one that I've got. <laughs> I easily understand what it means to be controlled by fear. I didn't know that there was a command in Scripture that I so easily am attracted to. Well, well wait a minute. Let's talk about this for just a minute because what is the fear really looking like? But it does say here in verse 17, it says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This actually is the idea of being controlled by fear. It's a passive language. It is the idea that, that the thing that you fear controls your actions, right? Is the idea that's being here. And you go, yeah, I've got that. But what we need to see is how that is introduced. Look at how it says it in verse 17. And if you call on him, God is Father. So if you pray to God who judges impartially, the God who has said he is going to judge the living and the dead. That if you pray to him who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That what we are to do is to fear God. And our fear of God is supposed to control our minds. is supposed to shape and conform us. The boundaries of our lives is this fear of God. It is because God is judge, but we're going to see something else in verses 18 through 21 as well. But this fear, what is it? We would use probably the words awe and reverence to understand this fear, to recognize who we are in light of who God is. I've often told you that the fear of the Lord is like the magnitude of something in nature that draws you to it, right? For me, it's a cliff that's super high. For Benjamin, it's the power of white water. For you, it's something that you go, that is so massive and powerful, I'm drawn to it. But unlike just nature and just creation, to fear God is to be drawn to an entity who has expressed an opinion about you and about me, to be drawn to him. To be filled with fear would be to be awe-filled, right? And what's the word that we know from awe-filled? It's actually awful, right? And you go, that's a weird word. If you read the old theologians, they use awful with wonderful. Isn't that wild? Awful has completely changed its meaning to us. When you say that your food is awful, you're not going to go back for another bite of it. You're going to leave it alone. But the idea here of being awe-filled is to be filled with wonder and fear and reverence for who God is. And this idea of fear is where we become very aware. Here is where it is most clear how we, how you and I forget the gospel. Because we can identify all the other things that we're afraid of. I'm going to ask you to raise the hand of your heart when I name your fear. All right? Are you afraid of death? Failure. Loneliness. Ridicule. Pain. What are you afraid of? 
Peter says here that to set our hope fully on God, the call of Christian hope on our minds is to fear God. But he wants to teach us what the fear of God is. I want you to look at verses 18 through 21 with me. Because the sentence continues on. Verse 17 again says, If you call on him who is father and judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then he says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. I want to stop for a minute and tell you the gospel truth about fearing God. We might say this is the God's honest truth about what it means to fear God. Verse 18 says knowing something. Verse 18 through 21 is what it means to gird up the loins of your mind. That's what Peter's doing here. He stops the imperatives for a minute and he says, I want to show you how to think about this gospel. Remember, long robes, picked up, tucked in, ready to run, to fight, to work, right? There are many allusions in these passage, this passage of Peter to Psalm 34, I would encourage you to go back and read Psalm 34. But one of the things that Psalm 34 says in verse 8 is, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Because if you fear God as just your judge, you do not know the fear of the Lord. Peter who was commanded by Jesus himself on that beach at breakfast to feed his sheep, feeds us here. Listen to what he says. He says this in verse 18. Fear, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. This idea of ransomed is being bought out of slavery. Being bought out of slavery to sin. The feudal ways inherited by our forefathers. The sin that marks us as human beings because we are the product of broken human beings. This original sin that is ours. Peter says, remember, the reason you ought to fear God is knowing that you have been ransomed. And then he says, but it's not with money. It's not with silver or gold that you've been ransomed, but it's the precious blood of Christ. Do you see the lamb without spot or blemish? You know what he's talking about, right, church? He's talking about the lamb of Passover. The lamb that was used when the Israelites were in Egypt and the angel of death was to come through all of Egypt, and only those who had the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb, marking the doorpost, the entrance, that which they stood underneath, would avoid that death. It is with, not with silver or gold that we have been ransomed, but the precious blood of Christ. 
It is the cross that is the real ransom. Peter says, know this. And then he goes on and he says, look, this is what was foretold in verse 20. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundations of the world. But Christ was made manifest in these last times for your sake. This was God's plan all along to bring redemption like this. It's verses 10 through 13 all over again. You can go back and read them. And it's all to this one end. So that in verse 21, look at it with me. It says this in verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. God is the one who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that, this is the reason why Peter tells us this, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Your faith and your hope are in God. Not just your hope, but your faith as well. Jesus is the one who crushes the lie of the serpent that has been sown into the hearts of human beings ever since the garden. God is not for you and he will not give you everything that you need. Jesus crushes that lie. And this is what gospel fear is. This is the gospel truth about what it means to fear God. And Peter, who was commanded to feed his sheep, wants you and I to know this. The songs continued throughout my week. I looked up Psalm 34. You know the Psalms are the songbook of the Hebrews, right? And if you go and look up Psalm 34, it's kind of a neat psalm. It's an acrostic psalm, meaning that each letter of each verse starts with a different Hebrew alphabet. 22 verses, right, for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's one that Peter, if he had worked on any psalm, probably knew this psalm. Peter, who was able to say, look, I've never eaten anything unclean, who was serious about his Jewish faith, would have known this psalm. I looked up Psalm 34, and immediately it took you to a link of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, Psalm 34. Look, if you want to extend your worship today, go home and listen to that on YouTube. As a choir that is at least twice as large as our entire conversation, congregation stands up and sings, magnify the Lord with me. Come and exalt his name forever. Glorify the Lord with me. Come and exalt his name forever. Look what God has done, Peter says, and fear him. But the last thing that Peter says is that the call of Christian hope also is a call to our hearts. And this one only has two parts in verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. The two parts are simply these. Love one another earnestly from the heart and long for the pure spiritual milk. Love one another earnestly from the heart. Do you see where he says that? Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
this idea of loving one another is the result of a purification of our souls by obedience to the truth. And you go, wait a minute, Bradley. I, I thought this, this was grace. It suddenly sounds like law. Now it sounds like there's something I've got to do. Obedience to the truth. But what Peter is talking about here is the truth that is the gospel. The truth that the gospel proclaims about who God is. It is belief here. When Jesus is asked, what does it mean to do the works of the Father? Jesus responds and says, to do the works of the Father is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Because Jesus rightly defines for you and me who God is. And his provision for us as human beings. So having purified our souls by obedience to the truth, to an end that there would be sincere brotherly love in us, Peter says, love one another earnestly from the heart. There's a famous preacher from the 19th century. Thomas Chalmers is his name. And he wrote a book. And the title of that book is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's not explosive power. It's expulsive power of a new affection. What does that mean? He argues in this book that for a heart to be set free from what it loves, the passions that it has inherited from its fathers, another object more alluring and another love more worthy must be presented to the heart. The gospel proclaims just such a love. The gospel, we are told, obedience to believing that this is who God is, is what generates in us love for one another, earnest love from a pure heart. It goes on to say that this is hopeful because we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and the abiding word of God. What is he saying? He's saying, do you know what will change you? Is hearing the gospel again. Is hearing it again. Because the words of the gospel are true to who God is. And they're imperishable because they're his words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That Christ didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Christian, do you believe this? I want to ask you a question. Can you name for me one former love of your life that has been expelled by God's love for you? Is there one thing that you used to love that you said, this is where I'm going to draw life from, that you no longer draw life from because of the expulsive power of the new affection that Jesus has given you? The second call of Christian hope on our hearts is this, that we would long for the pure spiritual milk right there in verse 2. The interesting thing is it's the only main verb in those three verses. 
It actually says it like this, putting away. It doesn't say so put away. It actually says putting away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. What causes you and me to practice malice, the intention of doing evil, to deceive? Don't need to define that for you, do I? Hypocrisy, saying one thing but living another way. Envy, as you see someone whose power and influence and material possessions is more than yours, are slander. Slander. Which the church today, which our church today may struggle with more than anything else. Slandering those whom we disagree with. Why that list? Because it reminds us that what we naturally long for is human approval, human honor, human love and human respect, success as compared to one another, validation in the eyes of others, ultimately glory, but glory given to us by human beings. And the apostle Peter says, look, put, putting that stuff away, Long for pure spiritual milk, like a newborn infant longs for it. Have you ever seen a newborn infant long for anything other than milk? No. Have you ever seen the insatiable appetite of a newborn infant? The insatiable appetite. It's as if you have to keep feeding a baby over and over and over and over and over again. And Peter is saying, that's the point. That's what I want you to see. The one thing that you long for is pure spiritual milk. And he says at the end of verse 3, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's another allusion in these passages to Psalm 34. Because the psalmist says in Psalm 34, Oh, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. But Peter isn't questioning whether the people he's writing to have tasted it. Because he says in verses 6 through 9, You rejoice. You already do this. You've tasted that the Lord is good. Peter is leading us to feed off of the truth that is in the gospel. He's doing what Jesus commanded him to do on that beach, which is, if you love me, Peter, feed my sheep. And that's what Peter's doing. Our call to worship today was Isaiah 55, where we are called to come and eat of the richest affair, to taste again. Do you see it again? And what are we tasting? The covenant love that God promised to David. It's what we eat and we know that it is good. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, again, O taste and see that the Lord is good. The last song is a simple song that we sing on a regular basis. When we sing of God's identity, we say, you are a good, good father. That's what you are. That's what you are. That's who you are. And I am loved by you. That is who I am. That is who I am. That is who I am.
Christian hope has a calling on your mind, but also on your hearts. And Peter wants to make sure that we see this because he's about to introduce us to the promise of suffering that Jesus himself assured Peter of. Let's go before the Lord now in prayer as we come to this table.